Good and gracious God, as we come here this morning, we come here with a sense of joy, with a sense of anticipation. Yes, we're in the midst of transition. And yes, transitions and changes are always difficult. And God, you know that we're, a, we're creatures of habit. And uh, you know that uh, we don't like change. And yet, God, in a very special way, watch over this people. Help them as they seek to be faithful to you in the future. And God, we thank you so much for your faithful servants, Pat and, and Laura and Don and Star. And uh, I pray that you would bless them richly. You would guide them to the next place that you're calling them to serve. And I pray that uh, they will be able to serve there as faithfully as they have served us so very, very well here. And God, I pray that you would continue to be with the session and those who are seeking your face and your guidance about the, the future staffing. And we ask God that uh, truly it might be uh, everything that's done might be uh, from you and, and might truly and ultimately bring honor and glory to you. God, I pray now that in these moments, uh, these moments when we look in your word together, that you would speak to us. Speak to us boldly about what you want us to be and do as we seek to follow the example of Jesus. And God, I pray that uh, you, your spirit might be the go-between, sharing necessary words to both the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Have you heard the story of William Borden? Well, William Borden graduated from a high school in Chicago in 1904. As an heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, he was already a millionaire when he graduated. For his high school graduation present, get this, he was, he was given by his parents a trip around the world. As the young man traveled from Asia through the Middle East and then into Europe, he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Borden wrote home and he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. At that same time, he wrote these two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Indeed, Borden held nothing back. During his college years at Yale University, he became a pillar of the Christian community. One entry in his personal journal that defined the source of the spiritual strength, his spiritual strength, simply said, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. During the first semester there at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that would transform campus life. This little group gave birth to a movement that moved across and spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. By the time Borden was a senior, 1,000 out of the 1,300 students then at Yale were meeting in such groups. Borden also strategized with his fellow Christians to make sure that every student at Yale heard the gospel. And Borden himself was often seen ministering to the downtrodden on the streets of New Haven. But his real passion was missions. Once he narrowed his missionary call 
to the Kansu people in China, Borden never wavered. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, no retreats. In keeping with that commitment, Borden turned down several high-paying job offers, enrolling in seminary instead. After graduating, he immediately went to Egypt to learn Arabic because of his intent to work with Muslims in China. While in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and within a month, 25-year-old William Borden died. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, he also wrote, no regrets. Today, as we continue the series on the suffering servant, we're going to look once again at the life of another young man who died in a similar part of the world. This young man gave up much, much more than William Borden. In fact, it was precisely because of the example of this young man who died 19 centuries before that Borden was willing to put himself in the situation that caused his demise. This young man, Jesus, the suffering servant, predicted by Isaiah, could have said with Borden, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. This Jesus set the supreme example of how we are to live our lives. No passage in the Bible does a better job of describing the example that he set than that of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And if you would, follow along with me as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We read the first and talked about the first four verses last week as we talked about unity and how crucial unity was for the church of Philippi and also for us. Listen now for these wonderful words which became a hymn in the early church. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death. On a cross. Therefore, Christ exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word, and may he apply these truths. To our lives. To experience unity, we find in verse 5, I believe that we must have the attitude of Christ Jesus. It's as if Paul is saying to the Philippians, and I believe to us today, if those first four verses, which we talked about last week, are to become reality, we must follow the example of Jesus. 
He might say to us, you need an attitude adjustment. You need a mind transplant so that you think and act like Jesus. Practically speaking, Paul is saying, if you're going to experience encouragement, comfort from his love, fellowship with the Spirit, and tenderness and compassion, you must have the attitude of Jesus. If you're going to be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and purpose, you must have the attitude of Jesus. If you're going to be delivered from selfish ambition, vain conceit, and self-interest, you must have the attitude of Jesus. But we don't know all the problems, as we mentioned last week, and the struggles of the Philippian church. We do know that there were a couple of women who were in a violent disagreement with each other, Iodia and Syntyche. Those kinds of differences, no matter how genuine they might have been, had caused Paul to go further and say that they must have the attitude of Christ Jesus. My dear friends, so it is with us. Over the past year, ZPC, which I once heard described as being the Teflon Church because it seemed like problems or conflicts just never stuck here, has gone through years of frustration and disillusionment. Now, as I believe we come out on the other end of this tunnel, of this troubling tunnel of difficulty, and we can begin to see the light, it's crucial that together we have the attitude or the mind of Jesus. As we begin the adventure of going back to the future, starting all over again, our attitude must be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's that attitude of Jesus made possible by the Holy Spirit filling us, guiding us, and empowering us that we can be the kind of, we can experience the kind of unity that Paul speaks about in the first five, four verses. That kind of unity comes as we're willing to humble ourselves as individuals and as a church, and more than anything else, desiring to be servants of God to one another and to the world around us. Paul goes into stunning detail as he writes what becomes, as I mentioned earlier, a hymn for the early church. This hymn was like their marching orders as they were bombarded by all kinds of outside forces. These powerful words about Jesus' willingness to humble himself as a servant were like a banner which was unfurled over their heads in the midst of the persecution in which many of them were tortured and died there in Philippi. It was that attitude of Jesus, the suffering servant, which became the catalyst for the body of Christ to grow exponentially in the then known world. The blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the early church. With that understanding, let's look together at Paul's vivid description of the attitude of Jesus so that we too might understand what it means. What we find here in an interesting way, Jesus' attitude was a sevenfold emptying of himself in verses 6 through 8. Paul starts with a crucial statement that Jesus is in his very nature or in his essential form. God. 
This is exactly the way John starts his prologue to his gospel when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, this might have been offensive to some of the religious leaders and some of the philosophers of the day. There was no doubt in the mind of Paul that Jesus was God. The first step was that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held on tightly, while his essential form, which could never be altered, was God. It was not something that he clutched and tried to hold on to. Maybe in kind of a shallow way, it would be as if someone were given a doctorate or some special credential, maybe uh, even knighted by the Queen of England, but decided never to use that. It's not something that would be grasped or even thought to be uh, special, but instead, even though that was who that person was, was willing to give it up and not allow that to be um, what that person was thought about, thought for. This is a window maybe to our understanding, but it's unbelievably trite in comparison to what Jesus did. The second thing he did was, but made himself nothing. The Greek word here for what Jesus did in this second step is the word kenosis. And this whole passage by scholars is called the kenosis passage. When it said he made himself nothing, it has the idea of emptying something or someone. It has the idea of pouring out the contents of a container until there is nothing left. It's as if Jesus was a container and and that was his essential form and it's not changed. He will always be God. But his willingness to empty himself of the peace, the serenity, the glory, and all of the trappings that went along with being God. British scholar William Barclay calls this the sacrifice of incarnation. Incarnation is that stunningly wonderful word which speaks of God coming to our world in human form. Paul captures the wonder of Jesus emptying when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Wow! That's unbelievably good news, even though we've heard it for centuries. That's life-changing news. The third step, taking the very nature of a servant. And the Greek word here for very nature is the same one used in verse 6, speaking of him being God. His essential form could not be altered. In other words, it was a part of Jesus' very DNA of his very core of his identity, to be a servant. He wasn't just playing some kind of a part. He wasn't just an actor. This is who he was, a servant. And the word for servant also is the same word used for slave, one whose life belonged to and was lived for and was at the disposal of the master. Do you see the impact of that word? Jesus' very identity, the very essence of his being, was that he was a servant to God and others. Fourth, being made in human likeness. And the key idea here is the act of becoming. It's that supreme stooping or humbling 
to become one of us. The creator was willing to become the creature to once and for all demonstrate how much he loves us. The fifth step, being found in in appearance as a man. It's very closely aligned to the last phrase. Jesus came to earth not as an animal. Some places they worship animals. Not as a tree or any other object. Not as some kind of a planet. But as a man. It's interesting for the word appearance here. It's different than the very nature. It's something that isn't permanent. He was 100% real as a man when he was here on this earth. But that was only for a certain season and time. As we consider both those last two steps, maybe you've heard of the father and his little son who were out for a walk. As they were out for a walk, they came across this very active anthill. And of course, the kid being a lot closer to it than his father saw all that was happening and he stopped in his tracks. And for minutes, he watched that anthill and they were going in every which direction. And the, the kid finally looked up at his father and said, Dad, I really like them. I wish I could talk to them. I wish I could know why they're doing what they're doing. His father thought for a moment and he said, you know, son, I guess the only way that would be possible would be that if you became an ant and you lived with them. That's what Jesus did when he came to our world to show us how much God loved us. The sixth step in this humbling as he humbled himself and became obedient to death. What a huge step to take in showing us how much he wanted to be in solidarity with us, to know what we feel and what we experience here in this life. I've often said that through the years as I've traveled with people, through the the journeys of faith, that probably the two greatest fears that I've seen displayed are, first of all, the human fear of death. Even as followers of Jesus who believe our eternal destiny is in heaven with him, it's instinctual to want to stay alive and to keep from dying as long as we can. Dying is that great unknown to us. But perhaps even more difficult, as I've mentioned in the past, is the fear of what we will go through before we die. Will it be a sudden automobile accident or a heart attack? Or will it be a long, drawn-out, pass, a long, drawn-out, painful passing? Jesus, as a human being, like us, faced those fears. And he now knows existentially how we feel when we fear, when we encounter death. And then it finally says, even death on a cross, the ultimate in humbling himself. Crucifixion on a splinter-laden cross was the most cruel, barbaric form of execution devised by human beings up until that time. The agony and the indignity was multiplied several fold by the beatings which ruthlessly took place before the execution, and then by the processional through the narrow streets as people would shout and scream obscenities at the person who was carrying his own cross. As you can imagine, it was a deterrent to crime, but it was so inhumane that Roman law said that no Roman citizen could be crucified. While few 
if any, knew what was really taking place. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was being sacrificed for the sins of the world. As was prophesied by Isaiah, this was the suffering servant's ultimate act of emptying himself so that all who would believe in him might experience the soothing balm of forgiveness, might experience the peace which passes all human understanding, and might have a living hope that no one or nothing could ever squelch. But we don't have time to look at the last part of this wonderful hymn. We see how God the Father vindicated Jesus, how he felt about the sevenfold emptying of Jesus, beginning with verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To go, to go a step further, Paul goes on to say a little bit further in that chapter that if the Philippians' attitude is that of Christ, then they will be like, and this is the term he uses, shining stars in a dark, crooked, depraved generation. Tradition says that Paul was beheaded not too long after he wrote these words. Yet if we could interview Paul, if I had him up here today and I'd say, Paul, tell me about how you felt. Paul was one of the great rising stars, one of the great scholars of his day before he became a follower of Christ. I believe Paul would say, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. I've stood there in Philippi next to the amphitheater which has been excavated a place where the Philippians were fed to the lions and where they fought off gladiators. Without doubt, I believe that they would say, as followers of Christ, who had the mind of Christ and became servants of God and servants of others, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. In Philippians 3.10, I believe they could also recite this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Dear friends, as you move into the adventure of going back to the future, with all of my heart, I believe that God is going to use you in ways beyond your dreams. I've often quoted the verse, and I'll quote it again today from 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has even begun to dream of what God has prepared for those who love him. But the key is for those who love him. How do we really love him? It's by being and having an attitude like Jesus Christ, an attitude of being a servant emptying ourselves completely to accomplish God's purpose for us. In the adventure of going back to the future with Vision 2020 being lived out in your midst, 
The thing which God will use more than anything else is the unity that comes through having an attitude the same as Jesus. Having that attitude means being willing to to empty or humble yourselves and become servants to your master and to the world around us. When you have that attitude, your focus will not be so much in filling the plate and filling the pew. It won't be in building buildings or slick programs or mottos or slogans. You won't be most concerned about how to compare yourselves with churches like Traders Point or College Park or any other effective church in this area. Your eyes won't be on the great leader that I believe God is going to call here to this place to be your senior pastor or on the wonderful staff whom God has called to be alongside of you at this place in this season. None of these ingredients will be your primary focus and should not be your primary focus. No, your focus should be singular. How can we be servants who empty ourselves in compassionate service to others? How can we love and serve people so much that they, in the most natural way, want to become followers of Jesus, want a relationship with him? In essence, by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, they are loved and served into the kingdom of God. You know, we're not going to reach the watching world, and we've said this many times, 38% of whom say they have no religious affiliation anymore, by anything less than having the same attitude as the suffering servant. Our mission statement, no matter how good it is or might be in the future, our worship services, no matter how powerful they might seem, our mission's emphasis, no matter how widespread it may be, will not impact the watching world as much as you emptying yourselves and being willing to become servants like Jesus was? Are you willing to lay aside the past with its glory and heartaches and humbly move into the future as servants? Are you willing to fall before God and repent of an attitude which is anything less than the mind of Christ, the suffering servant? Dream with me. Dream with me of what that would look like. Not a vision of grandeur, not a vision of institutional adulation, but people laying down their lives in loving service to one another. I want to use an illustration to close with that again has to do with ants. I don't know. I've, I've really, we don't have ants in our house right now. And, and, and we, you know, I've, I haven't really used ants very often and I don't come from Antwerp. But, uh, but this illustration was vivid as I thought about it. <laughs> Get this. Certain ants in South and Central America and their rainforest will lie down in the potholes that stand between their army and their food. Their bodies form a makeshift bridge allowing other ants, sometimes numbering over 200,000, to make better time in getting to the source of nourishment. This pattern in the life of ants was discovered through research done at England's University of Bristol. 
Researchers took a wooden plank and drilled different sized holes in it, simulating a narrow trail. Ants would find holes equal to their size and lay down in size inside, letting others walk safely over them. When the raiding party accomplished its mission and was returning to its nest, the faithful few climbed out of their holes and followed the raiders home. Oh, that we might be like those ants, as it were, that we're willing to lay down our lives so that others may be served. I pray that it will be accurately said of you as an individual and also accurately said of this church. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Let us pray. God, I thank you so much for this body of people. I thank you for the way that you have called each person here to be a part of this family. And in this season of transition and change, I pray that instead of uh, our minds being on uh, the difficulty of all of this, I pray that our minds might be squarely focused on Jesus, the one who is the author and promises to be the finisher of our faith, the one who sets the supreme example for, ourself, for, for all of us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be able to say in the distant future that there are no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Let us pray. And now may the love of God our Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship, the courage, the comfort of God's Spirit go with you all both now and forevermore. Amen.